I'm Christian Weishart, and this is Examining Ethics, brought to you by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Philosopher Manvel Verstoffer joins us to review some of the most pressing climate issues we face today. I care deeply about human rights. I care deeply about ethical issues, um, and I deeply care about indigenous people's lives. So I find it very fascinating how climate change impacts um, especially the most marginalized, uh, the most disadvantaged, the most vulnerable people on Earth. We'll explore intergenerational justice, responsibility for climate change, and much more on today's episode of Examining Ethics. So welcome to the show. We're discussing your article, Climate Ethics and Climate Politics. So just briefly introduce us to the issue that you're writing about here. So the article is about two big topics. The first one is climate ethics. So the main question here is, should we consider climate change as an ethical issue? And if so, how? And the second part of the article is about the biggest challenges of climate politics. So I talk a bit about the role of lobbyism, um, rent seeking. What are the biggest challenges when it comes to climate action right now from a political point of view? And, and briefly, why is this an issue of ethics and not, say, an issue of just environmental science or economics? Climate change is an, a big environmental issue. It is also a socioeconomic issue. So climate change comes with lots of economic costs, but it is also a key ethical issue. And the main reason is that it directly relates to and raises equity, fairness, and uh, societal or social justice considerations, including issues such as intergenerational justice, distributive justice, or environmental justice. And climate change also directly relates to several ethical principles, uh, including the do-no-harm principle, the polluters-pays principle, or the ability-to-pay principle. And last but not least, climate change also directly impacts human rights. It impacts the rights of indigenous peoples. That's why climate change is uh, a very important ethical issue. So one of the issues of fairness that you bring up is that, and you write about this in detail, but sort of the general idea is that climate change is going to disproportionately affect certain regions more than others. So for example, in America, it's going to shift values and wealth from poorer regions in the South um, or in the Central West. It's going to shift wealth from those regions to regions that are already rich like New England or the Pacific Northwest. So first of all, help us understand how that's going to happen. And then what would you say to people who argue, okay, well, you know, if you live in the Florida Keys, why don't you just move? Climate change, you're absolutely right. Climate change disproportionately affects poor areas. And it is expected that it will contribute to growing socioeconomic inequalities here in the US, but also elsewhere. Poor regions are expected to get poorer, whereas rich regions are expected to get richer. And there might be even some regions here in the US that might benefit from climate change. It is expected that the United States will lose between 1% and 2% of GDP for each degree Celsius increase in global temperature. But the poorest regions of the US will suffer more. So to give you some examples, the Gulf Coast economy is expected to be damaged by the increasing frequency and intensity of hurricanes and rising sea levels. Higher temperatures in the south, uh, for example, in Texas, will increase air conditioning costs and decrease labor productivity. Um, the Midwest or the central parts of the US 
will experience agricultural losses due to more frequent and intense weather events. But then there are also other parts of the US, for example, in the north, in the western um, US, that could benefit from rising temperatures due to longer growing seasons, reduced energy costs, and so on. So in short, climate change is expected to cause a net transfer of values and wealth from the south, central, and mid-Atlantic regions, which are poorer on average, to the Pacific, Northwest, Great Lakes region, and also to New England, which are richer on average. Now, with regard to climate migration, um, this is absolutely true, especially when we see it from a global perspective. It is expected that we will see more and more people being forced to leave their homelands uh, due to rising sea levels, um, extreme weather events, and, and also droughts, heat waves, and so on. And it is expected that we might see between 100 and 200 million people being forced to leave their homelands until 2050. And this obviously comes with huge socioeconomic, but also with political implications as refugees and also asylum seekers are oftentimes a politically very controversial topic. So when we discuss the ethics of climate change, as you mentioned before, justice is often invoked. And as you pointed out, um, there's many different kinds of justice, and we'll get into some of those details later. But just generally, how can we sort out responsibility for these problems? Like, And then how it's possible, or is it possible, to make sure that justice is served when it comes to climate change? Yes, that's an excellent question. So there is indeed a significant relationship between climate change on the one hand and justice considerations on the other hand. Various forms of justice are directly impacted. So we have, for instance, uh, intergenerational justice. The main issue here is that the current climate crisis is caused by previous and current generations, but the main burden um, in terms of climate change mitigation and adaptation costs will fall on uh, future generations. And the less current generations do in terms of climate change mitigation, the more burden, the more damage, the more harm will be pushed off onto future generations. So inaction uh, increases future um, mitigation costs. And the worst case scenario would be that future generations will inherit an entirely unlivable planet. So the question here is really, do current, do living generations have duties? Do they have responsibilities and also obligations towards um, future generations? We also have intergenerational issues. So this relates to justice considerations among living generations, especially between industrialized countries on the one hand and developing countries on the other hand. And the biggest issue here is really that we have this huge disparity or gap between cause and effect. So when we take a closer look at the empirical data, um, it is obvious that climate change is mostly caused, it's mostly driven by the rich countries in North America, but also in Europe and also in China. Um, but the countries that will suffer the most are located in Africa, in Latin America, in Southeast Asia. And those are the countries that have contributed the least to climate change. So when we take a closer look at the cumulative CO2 emissions over the past few hundred years, we see that the US has emitted the most, followed by the European Union member states and China. Um, but those are not the countries that will suffer the most. The suffering is expected to, to occur mostly in already poor regions, and those are the ones that have not caused uh, the current climate crisis. And in addition to that, those countries, for example, uh, countries in tropical regions, etc., 
and they have fewer resources available to protect themselves against extreme weather events, rising sea levels, the outbreak of epidemics, and food and water insecurities. So again, most climate change inflicted human suffering is expected to occur in already poor regions. It affects mostly disproportionately already disadvantaged, marginalized, and vulnerable populations. So the question here is whether rich countries, whether industrialized countries, whether wealthy countries, such as the US, but also the European Union member states, have responsibilities to better support poor countries, especially developing countries and uh, least developed nations. So one of the ways that we can figure out who is responsible is something you call event attribution science, which I thought was really interesting. I'd never come across that phrase before. And this is basically the science of figuring out who is polluting or who is contributing to climate change. So I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the ethics kind of nested in that, and then also um, who's, who's undertaking this research, who is doing this kind of science. So yeah, this is a um, really fascinating uh, type of uh, climate science research. It tries to attribute or link extreme weather events to anthropogenic or human-caused climate change. It basically tries to analyze the human impact on extreme weather events. And the key questions here are, did the presence of climate change resulting from human greenhouse gas emissions make a specific uh, weather event more or less likely or more or less intense? And if so, by how much? So what event attribution scientists do, uh, they basically compare the world with climate change, the real world, with the world without human influence, that is without any form of anthropogenic climate change. And they make use of a variety of methodologies. They use computer simulations, climate models, uh, but also meteorological data, satellite data, and historical data. And they assess the probabilities of extreme weather events due to climate change. Several studies have found that human-made or human-induced climate change increases the risk of extreme weather events, frequency, and also the intensity of those events around the world. They have made death more likely, but also economic damage more likely. And with each degree Celsius more of global warming, extreme weather events um, such as hurricanes, such as droughts, such as wildfires, heat waves, etc., will become more and more likely. So we've already talked about distributive justice on the show before, and I'll leave a link to the specific cho- show where we talk about that. And that's one of the types of justice that you cover in this article. Another type of justice that you cover is intergenerational justice. And again, you, you talk about this really evocative phrase called the, the tyranny of the contemporary. So what does that mean? And how does that relate to intergenerational justice? So intergenerational justice basically asks the question whether current or living generations have duties or responsibilities towards future generations, especially when it comes to climate change mitigation costs. It's basically about justice considerations between current and, and future generations, but it's also about the fair distribution of resources between living and future generation and about the responsibilities of present generations, especially regarding climate change mitigation and adaptation. Now, the phrase that you are referring to, I believe, goes back to to the work of um, Gardiner, um, who is a um, a philosopher, um, and and he basically claims that current or short-term economic interests dominate the current discourse on climate action, on climate change mitigation and adaptation. So we're basically not considering the interests of future generations. And philosophers such as Gardiner 
they would basically argue that present generations have a certain responsibility also towards future generations. The same way of arguing is also put forward by, by Möllendorf, who is another um, great climate philosopher. He comes up with this idea of a morally constrained CO2 emissions budget. And he basically argues that this emissions budget should be equally shared or distributed between present and future generations. So he argues that current generations must ensure to leave enough of that budget, enough of the natural resources that are currently available for future generations. And they should not use more than their fair share of this budget. So the main argument here is really that we need to make sure that natural resources are equally shared between current generations and future generations. In terms of distributive justice, philosophers such as Gardiner, but also Möllendorf and others, um, they also argue that climate change mitigation should go hand in hand with the so-called anti-poverty principle, which means that climate change action should go hand in hand with the fight against poverty, especially in the least developed nations. Um, so we should also have a, a fair, fair, fair distribution of natural resources, not only between present generation and future generation, but also between industrialized countries and developing countries. Is the reason that we would have to tie concerns about poverty to distributive justice because issues of the environment are going to be sort of inextricable from economic issues? Yes. I mean, climate change comes with a couple of different economic cost factors. We have, uh, for example, significant health costs. For example, air pollution caused by the burning of fossil fuels will become more and more of an issue, especially in uh, developing countries, for example, in Southeast Asia or in Africa. Another very important economic cost factor is, for example, how climate change negatively impacts agriculture, which is one of the most uh, climate-sensitive industry sectors. So climate change might also negatively impact food production. It might lead to more and more food insecurity. It might lead to more hunger and also to more, uh, to more and more poverty. And uh, climate change also negatively impacts other economic sectors as well. And again, uh, many of the developing countries, the least developed countries on earth, are those that heavily depend on agriculture. As I mentioned before, agriculture is one of the most climate sensitive sectors or one of the most climate sensitive industry sectors. And that's why our countries, for example, such as Bangladesh will be so negatively impacted. Bangladesh, for example, is one of the most climate vulnerable countries on earth. And it is expected that because of the increase in the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events, but also rising sea level, that this negatively impacts, for example, their rice production. So it negatively impacts the bread baskets of many developing countries, uh, which might lead to more poverty and also to more hunger. So I want to shift gears here a little bit and talk about the way that we um, talk and think about climate change or climate politi politics. So what are some of the cognitive biases that happen to us or that uh, we have to be careful about when we're thinking about climate politics. Cognitive biases play a significant role. I would ju just like to mention two very important ones. The first one is called status quo bias or the so-called default effect. And this relates to the tendency of people to choose or favor the present option, for example, a fossil fuel-based lifestyle and climate inaction over an uncertain alternative, future alternatives, etc. And it basically refers to this presence, preference for things as they are, how, however bad they might be. And the second very important cognitive bias that plays a role when it comes to 
individual inaction, but also political inertia is called uh, nimbyism, so not in my backyard. Uh, and it indicates an opposing attitude of nearby residents to a proposed development project in the local area, although the exact same people would tolerate or support the identical type of project if it would be built further away. So to give you an example, in the context of climate change, uh, that would be wind turbines, which are often opposed by nearby residents. So these are some of the two um, biggest cognitive biases, nimbyism, but also status quo bias, which oftentimes lead to climate inaction or lack of support of climate action. So if a listener is, is on board with fighting climate change, is there a way to train ourselves away from these cognitive biases or, or a way to like change our thinking for the positive so that we can take action? I believe one of the biggest issues is to challenge or to, to address what is referred to as an anthropocentric worldview. So anthropocentrism basically believes that humans are at the center of the universe, that only humans possess intrinsic value or inherent worth, whereas, for example, all animals, but also natural ecosystems, possess only instrumental value, which means that they can be exploited by humans, they can be abused in order to satisfy human needs. So shifting away from a human-centered perspective towards a more nature-centered point of view, towards more a non-anthropocentric um, worldview would definitely help. This basically means that we should not look at animals or at ecosystems as something that we can exploit, that we should consider as a means to an end, but something that also has an end in itself and is valuable in and of itself, independent of the usefulness to humans. So this shift from a human-centered point of view towards a nature-centered point of view uh, might definitely help when it comes to reducing environmental destruction and also when it comes to fighting climate change. I think people my age and maybe a little bit younger, there's like a tendency towards nihilism when it comes to thinking about climate change or maybe hopelessness uh, might be a better way of putting that because, you know, I can do all sorts of things individually to reduce my carbon footprint or to try to fight for a better world. But, you know, whatever I'm doing is is just a drop in the bucket when you know, when you compare that to all of the damage that big corporations and even governments are doing. So what would you say to those of us who are maybe feeling a little bit hopeless when it comes to climate change? Yeah, I absolutely understand this. This is one of the, the biggest ethical issues as well that we have here, this so-called fragmentation uh, of agency, meaning that climate change is not caused by a single agent. It cannot also be fixed by a single agent. You're absolutely right. Uh, coming back to event attribution science, when we take a closer look at the latest empirical research there, it shows that the biggest 90 fossil fuel producing companies in the world are responsible for more than 60% of all CO2 emissions and the top 20% are responsible for 35% of all CO2 emissions. The same is true for the big countries, for the big economies. China right now is the biggest emitter of CO2. They emit roughly 10 billion tons of CO2 or roughly 31% of all CO2 emissions every year, followed by the US with 5 billion tons of CO2 and roughly 14% of all CO2 emissions. So China, the European Union member states and the US are the largest emitters of CO2. And we have a few very big fossil fuel corporations that are largely responsible for those greenhouse gas and CO2 emissions. I think it is important to really 
shift our conversation when it comes to to nihilism but also when it comes to climate inaction and i think what we really need is to change the narratives so right now the focus when, when we talk about climate change mitigation and adaptation the focus is oftentimes about the risks it's about the costs in order to gain support from ordinary citizens also from civil society in general it is important to shift from a from these negative narratives towards more positive narratives. So for instance, to talk a bit more about people's health, if we fight climate change, this would also lead to significant health benefits. We would fight or we would reduce air pollution. We would be able to fight many diseases, vector-borne diseases, waterborne diseases, et cetera, et cetera. So we would have lots of health benefits. So talking more about people's health, which is directly linked to the health of the planet, or to talk more about uh, clean energy or clean air, or to talk a bit more about the positive aspects of the transformation from a fossil fuel-based economy to towards uh, a zero-carbon economy. This transition comes with lots of employment opportunities, lots of business opportunities or investment opportunities. So there is indeed this business case for climate action, for climate change mitigation, and so on. It might lead to more jobs being created in, in, in certain industries. And it might also enhance the competitiveness and the innovativeness of the US and other economies. So climate change, this transition from a fossil fuel-based economy towards a zero-carbon economy comes with lots of benefits. And changing narratives, talking a bit less about the costs and the risks and more about the positive impacts might also help to convince people to do more in terms of climate action. And the last point that I would like to mention is, so the goal of the Paris Climate Accord is to limit uh, climate change or global warming to 2 degrees Celsius, ideally to 1.5 degrees Celsius relative to pre-industrial levels. Right now, we have already passed 1.1, 1.2 degrees Celsius, but there is a huge difference uh, whether we end up at a world that is 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees Celsius warmer, or whether it's 3, 4, or 5 degrees Celsius warmer. So it makes a huge difference. But again, we need a, a fundamental change in terms of climate science communication, shifting from negative narratives towards more positive narratives would definitely help to bring more people on board. I think it's becoming increasingly hard to avoid misinformation and disinformation when it comes to climate science. So I was I was a little bit ashamed because earlier I mentioned something about reducing my carbon footprint. And then I remembered immediately after I said that, that that's like, that's something that the oil company BP came up with as a part of a marketing campaign. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, there are all kinds of tricky things like that that have been happening. And and so do you have any tips for folks who want to avoid misinformation or what are some what are some solid sources that we can rely on when it comes to uh, climate science? Obviously, these disinformation campaigns coming from these interest group based attacks or from these so-called merchants of doubts are definitely a, a huge problem. So you're absolutely right. There are a couple of institutions, organizations, for example, the Heartland Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute. These are pseudoscientific um, advocates. They indeed try to undermine, distort and fabricate facts and theories. They try to sow doubt and confuse the public. And most importantly, they try to erode uh, the trust of society in science. So what we have seen over the past few years, not only when it comes to climate science, but also when it comes to, to COVID and, and, and uh, other issues. The main problem here is really this mistrust in uh, science. And these disinformation campaigns 
are pretty similar to what the tobacco tobacco industry did a few years and decades ago, you know, to cast doubt about the connection between smoking and cancer. Now, when it comes to reliable sources, uh, I would recommend checking out uh, the podcast and also the YouTubes of one of my colleagues, Catherine Hayhoe. She's a really great climate science communicator, and um, she tries to also use language that is easily understandable to lay persons. So I think one of the biggest issues when it comes to climate science communication is also to communicate in a way that is easily understandable for lay people. As I mentioned before, it is also important to bring people on board, for instance, to show them how climate change impacts them on a personal level, but also to point out the positive aspects of climate change. As I mentioned before, climate change has the potential to lead to lots of investment opportunities, employment opportunities, but it can also enhance the competitiveness and also the efficiency and innovativeness of the US and other economies. Why do you care about this? What what brought you to this work? I, I studied philosophy and I care deeply about human rights. I care deeply about ethical issues um, and I deeply care about indigenous people's lives. So I find it very fascinating how climate change impacts, um, especially the most marginalized, uh, the most disadvantaged, the most vulnerable people on earth. Um, When it comes to climate change, as I mentioned before, there are obviously a lot of people that will be negatively impacted, especially indigenous peoples. And um, what is really interesting is that even here in the US, we already have some climate refugees. For example, in Alaska, indigenous peoples that were forced to leave their ancestral lands, leave their homelands because of the thawing of permafrost. And again, it's these injustices between or this disparity between cause and effect. Those countries, those corporations that have caused uh, the current problem, climate change, are not the ones that are suffering the most. Those that are suffering the most are indigenous peoples, are um, people living in developing countries, and etc. Uh, et and they have not contributed anything to the current problem. I also deeply care about politics and how we can make things better. So it's really about how climate science and and, and also other forms of science can have a a positive impact on people. How can we make the life of of people better? I try to really propose solutions, how we can really fight this problem. We need consumers. Consumers can make a um, huge difference when it comes to climate change. They basically vote their money. We also need to talk about the role of cities, um, municipalities. We need to talk about the role of corporations, especially finance. So I also uh, do a lot of research when it comes to climate finance, when it comes to green bonds, and when it comes to the role and responsibility of banks and other financial institutions, because they basically provide a lot of funding to fossil fuel companies. So they could also make a difference by divesting from those companies. But we also need to talk about the federal government. We need to talk about international organizations. So all of these things need to come together, the micro level, the meso level, and also the macro level. And we also need to have a mixture of top-down reform measures, for example, carbon taxes, emissions trading schemes, et cetera. But we also need to have bottom-up reform measures or approaches, for example, grassroots movements. And uh, Fridays for Future is a a great example, uh, where especially the the, the younger generation uh, took action and to raise awareness, to sensitize people and politicians for those issues. So again, it's, it's about the ethical implications of climate change, especially human rights, the rights of indigenous peoples, but it's also about the role and responsibility of politics and also the role uh, and influence of rent-seeking groups, lobbying groups, etc., and how we could fight those issues. 
If you want to find more about our guests' other work, download a transcript, or learn about some of the things we mentioned in today's episode, visit prindleinstitute.org backslash examiningethics. Examining Ethics is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Christian Weishart wrote and produced the show. Our logo was created by Evie Brogius. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at sessions.blue. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePauw alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePauw University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.